My name is Tiffany Page, and this is my story. The first thing that I remember is um, just growing up in a lot of um, in a lot of confusion. And the first place that I found solace in all of the in the chaos that I was um, in was through food. Nobody taught me that I had to hide. No one told me to not eat one more cookie. And for some reason. I kept going back and eating one more cookie and one more cookie and the shame and the self-hatred that came with that was just huge and it just started it just started swallowing me. When I was in high school, I discovered that drugs and alcohol would take that edge off. You know, depending on which drug addiction I got into, some of them I wouldn't have to eat for days. All of it was around just not feeling okay. I didn't feel enough. I wanted control and it had me by the throat from the very first time. I discovered in high school that, that art did something special and that I could connect to something on the inside. It felt bigger than me and it gave me that sense of peace that I was after and it gave me a sense of meaning. So I went to design school. It was an incredible experience but it was also still really covered and colored with addiction and um, seeking and searching. At some point along the way I started reading different books on crystals and energy and metaphysics and those sort of things. and. I found a great sense of peace in the sunset and washing my crystals in the sunset. <laughs> I don't know. I think when I look back, I think I was looking for God. I really do. And I was just trying I was trying all these different versions of it, all these different combinations between different substances and different people, places and things trying to get trying to fill that hole. So about eight and a half years ago I started working with um, with someone who was guiding me through the recovery process. And it wasn't long before I got comfortable with the word God. And it was God as I understood God. So I liked that, because then I could define God. And literally at, at 11 and a half months through that process, I was invited to go to church with my friends. And at the end of the church service, my friend Stella came outside with me. She said, how are you? Are you doing okay? I'm like, yeah, I'm all right. I said, just, just all this Jesus stuff is kind of freaky. And she looked at me and she goes, yeah, Jesus is pretty freaky. And we just laughed and she gave me a hug and I felt like it was okay to be kind of freaked out. So I went to church every single week. I went to church every single week and I didn't know what was happening to me, but I knew something was happening. I found freedom from addiction in a way that I never had. You know, all of those years, it changed things. It totally changed things. And so um, I felt like I finally found home. <laughs> Well, good morning. Happy Easter. So glad to see all of you here. So glad that you chose to worship with us this morning um, on this Resurrection Sunday 2018. Uh, on your chair are these uh, Cadbury cream eggs, and uh, one of my core values is fun. And so this is fun. One of my core values is not chocolate, but, uh, you know, why should the kids have all the fun, right, at Easter? So that's for you. You're welcome. Hope you didn't sit on it. Well, you know, there's a, there's a strange irony to this day, isn't there? Because today is Easter, Resurrection Sunday, the highest day in the Christian calendar, but it's also April Fool's Day. And uh, for, for some of you, that, that may not seem coincidental at all. You've, you've felt that way all along. You know, you're... You're persuaded that Christianity is only for fools anyway, so this is just uh, this is just a payback, right? So uh, I don't know all of you, of course, or why you 
chose to came, chose to come this morning, you, you may be here strictly out of obligation or courtesy to a friend or a family member, a mother-in-law. <laughs> you, you may feel like this Jesus stuff is kind of freaky. Uh, you may feel like the self-acclaimed atheist Daniel Dinette did as he spoke about... Uh, I spoke about his interactions with Christ followers. He said, there's no polite way to suggest to someone that they've devoted their life to a folly. And uh, that's, that's true, isn't it? There is no polite way to do that. 20th century journalist H.L. Mencken uh, took it a step or two further when he said, speaking of Christianity, religion is so absurd that it comes to imbecility. Uh, for, for Mencken to as well as for many others, to be a, a Christian is to be an imbecile. Maybe you feel that way this morning. You know, maybe, maybe you're here under protest. Maybe somebody dragged you in here. Um, I apologize for that if that's the case. I'm sorry for you. Um, but I hope that you'll give a listen to what we have to say this morning since you're here. <laughs> the Apostle Paul at one time held a pretty similar opinion to to those two guys I just quoted. Uh, Paul was a a Jew who lived in the first century. Uh, He happened to be one of the best educated men of his day. Uh, In his early career, he went by his birth name, Saul, and he was a notorious and and really unrelenting persecutor of the church, a bit of a terrorist, actually. Uh, But through a, a sudden, abrupt, very unexpected personal encounter with the risen Jesus Christ, his life was radically transformed. He, he became a persuaded believer in Jesus as Messiah. Instead of persecuting the church, he, he changed his name to Paul and spent the rest of his life preaching the cross and the, the resurrection of Jesus and planting churches all around the Mediterranean region. Uh, Most of the New Testament, the second part of the Bible, was written by him. And he wrote the passage that we're going to consider together this morning. Our tradition here at LifePoint is to stand when we read God's word. So will you stand with me and let's read aloud together. The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the wise, where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. This is God's word. You may be seated. If you have a Bible this morning, uh, you can go ahead and turn it on or open it up. Um, There are Bibles on the aisles, and there's a table at the back. If you don't have a Bible with you today, now's a good time to grab one if you We'd like to take one home with you. It's our gift to you today. Turn to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Notice with me that in verse 18 of 1 Corinthians 1, Paul says, 
that there are two kinds of people in the world as distinguished by their respective responses to the message of the cross. But before we get into them, uh, we need to understand what it is that Paul meant by the word of the cross or the message of the cross or what we usually refer to simply as the gospel. Uh, Paul points to four pillars to the message that he describes as that word of the cross. And they're in chapter 15 of this same letter, if you want to turn forward to 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 through 8. The first of those four pillars is this. It says that Christ died for our sins. No serious historian doubts that Jesus Christ died on a cross. Jesus of Nazareth was crucified on a Roman cross outside of Jerusalem. Uh, There's substantial extra-biblical historical record of that. But the biblical message of the cross is not simply that he died or that he was victimized at the cross, but rather he was a victor, not a victim. He went to the cross willingly. He went there purposefully. And there on the cross, Jesus, the perfectly sinless human, offered himself as the perfect sacrifice for sinful humanity. The Bible says that all have sinned and that the just compensation for sin is death. So that when we say that Christ died for our sins, we mean that he died our death for us. Someone once described it this way, that he, Jesus, paid a debt he didn't owe because we owed a debt that we couldn't pay. The late existentialist philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche, father of the God is dead movement, thinking he was dealing a blow to Christians and Christianity, once wrote, the word Christianity is already a misunderstanding. In reality, there has been only one Christian and he died on the cross. What Nietzsche didn't realize is that he had unwittingly captured the very essence of the message of the cross, that Christ died on the cross as the only perfect representative of a very imperfect humanity. The Bible says that Jesus bore all of our sin in his own body on the cross, offering one sacrifice for all sin for all time. That included your sin and it included mine. And then his final dying words were, it is finished. Or more literally, paid in full. His death entirely covered the entire debt that we owed. Your sins can be forgiven because Jesus already paid the penalty for your failure to meet God's righteous standard. The second pillar of this word of the cross is that he was buried. He was buried. You know, before Jesus' body was taken down from the cross, we know that he was 
dead. We have historical record that the Roman soldier assigned to the crucifixion detail that day who had observed more than his share of deaths reported that Jesus was dead, had been dead for quite some time before he was taken down from the cross. He didn't merely lose consciousness as some have suggested. He didn't just go comatose. He didn't just get into some kind of limbo state and then, and then later was revived in the coolness of the tomb. His body was dead before it was taken from the cross and it was laid in the tomb of a man named Joseph of Arimathea who was a Jewish leader who had become secretly a believer in Jesus. The third pillar is this, that he was raised from the dead on the third day. This historical event that that Christians celebrate on this day that we call Easter or Resurrection Sunday, all of the Old Testament prophets predicted it. Jesus told his disciples repeatedly in the months leading up to his passion that he would suffer and die in Jerusalem and then that he would be raised on the third day and that is exactly what occurred. Jesus of Nazareth was raised physically from the dead by the power of God, demonstrating his identity as the Son of God, our only Savior. The fourth pillar is this, that he was seen alive by the 12, Jesus' closest followers, by Peter, by Jesus' own brother James, and over 500 others over a period of 40 days. The Bible presents the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead not as a mythological tale nor wishful thinking, but as a historical event substantiated by eyewitnesses. In fact, Paul was so bold as to stake the claim that if Jesus was not raised from the dead in historical fact, then our faith would be worthless and we would still be in our sins. And it's true. Christianity rises and falls on one historical event, and that is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If he wasn't historically, physically raised from the dead, then our faith is worthless, and we have no Savior. Our sins are unforgiven, and we live separated from God. In verse 18 of 1 Corinthians 1, Paul goes on and he asserts, as I said earlier, that all of humanity divides into two groups according to their responses to that one message. The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, he said, it is the power of God. Those who are perishing, those who are being saved. The first group are those who, having heard the message, will say, well, that's ridiculous. What kind of moron believes that stuff? And in fact, the actual Greek word translated folly or foolishness here is the word moron. The the second group are those who, hearing the message of the cross, perceive it to be true, experience its power, receive it personally, and put their faith in Jesus Christ as the one whom God sent, the only one whom God sent, to save them from the penalty of their sin. Have you ever wondered how that works, why, why it is that Some people hear the gospel, believe it, and receive it, while others couldn't care less. 
and just reject it out of hand as blatant nonsense? Imagine two people, identical in so many ways. You might even imagine them as twins. grew up together, were raised the same way, in the same home, same values, they think alike, they enjoy the same kinds of food and music, they may have the same sense of humor, maybe have the same political leanings, otherwise share many other things in common. And, and, and they hear the very same message, the word of the cross, the message of the gospel, and yet they have diametrically opposite responses to this message. And then those two radically different responses propel their lives along two very divergent tracks, moving relentlessly toward two very different destinies. And specifically, Paul says that those in the first group, based on their rejection of the message of the cross, are perishing. That word perishing is a powerful word in the Greek language. It means not only that they are being separated from God, but that because they are separated from God, they are being separated from themselves. And they're moving ultimately toward, by their own choice, eternal separation from God. He then says that those in the second group, based on their reception of the message of the cross, are instead being saved. Well, what is it that they're being saved from. The Bible says that they are saved from the penalty of their sin because they put their faith in Jesus Christ who bore their sins in his own body, died in their place, paid the penalty for their sin. They are being saved from the power of sin because it no longer holds them in its grip. Sin can no longer condemn them. And instead of drifting away from God, drifting away from themselves, they are being drawn closer to him, going deeper into him, experiencing more and more of his grace, his forgiveness, his love, his kindness, his faithfulness, his power that leads ultimately to eternal life. It's a funny thing about being saved, funny thing about coming to know God is that not only are we drawing close to God, but in him we find who we really are. We find ourselves. One message, the word of the cross, elicits two very different responses. One perceives it as moronic, imbecilic stupidity. The other receives it as the power of God with two radically different effects. What explains, then, these two radically different responses? Two radically different effects. Paul goes on in verses 19 through 25, and he wants us to know that the explanation cannot be that one group is smarter, one group is wiser, one group is more sophisticated or better educated than the other. Notice verses 19 to 20. It is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. That word destroy there means to set apart, to set as nothing, to diminish it, to, to, to annihilate it. I will 
destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? See, the Bible tells us that salvation cannot be achieved through human wisdom or human intellect. You can't think your way to God. People pursue God and salvation through all kinds of pathways other than Jesus Christ. Everyone searches for God. Everyone searches for that, that God, that, that thing that will fill that God-shaped vacuum in their hearts, that empty place through food, through drugs and alcohol, through religion, through philosophy, through meditation, through nature. And this folly, this foolishness of God with its message of the cross is in fact God's way of doing what he said he would do. Destroy the wisdom of the wise and thwart the discernment of the discerning. In verse 20, the one who is wise means a a person of learning, an educated person. Uh, The doctors and the, the PhDs. The scribe is a teacher of the Jewish law. The debater is the Greek philosopher. And Paul asks, since God has set human wisdom aside, where does that leave all of them? And in verse 20, he answers, latter part of verse 20, he answers his own question. Has not God, has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Has not God made those who think they're so wise, those who think they're so smart, those who think they're so educated and sophisticated, has not God made them the fools. God has exposed the wisdom of the world for the foolishness that it is. In other words, God has exposed for their pretentious nonsense those who have allowed themselves to believe that they are so wise, so intellectual, so smart that they can stand in judgment of the will and the ways of God. And God accomplished that exposure by the simple, surprising, subversive message of the crucified and risen Christ. Now watch where he goes from here. Verse 21, for since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Listen now. It was an expression, it was a demonstration of the divine wisdom of God that the world did not, could not come to know God through human wisdom. Just imagine for a moment what it would be like if it were true that only those who were especially intelligent, especially clever, especially articulate and persuasive, who had the best educations could go to heaven Those especially smart people could boast that they deserve to go to heaven because of their intellect and they earned it like they earned a scholarship to college or university. The world did not come to know God through its own wisdom. Why? Because God determined that that's the way it would be. Instead, he chose something totally unexpected. He chose the foolishness of the message of the cross to save those who believe. See, education doesn't get you to heaven. Human wisdom doesn't get you there. But believing and receiving a simple message from God 
about his son, Jesus Christ, does get you there. Paul wrote to the Christians in the city of Rome, so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. God chose a message so simple that a child could understand it, could respond to it by faith, and enter into the kingdom of God. See, the Jews discounted the message of the cross as a colossal failure. Their Messiah wouldn't die on a Roman cross. The Greeks viewed it as the very opposite of wisdom. But Paul concludes in verses 24 to 25, we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, foolishness to Gentiles, but to those who are called, whether Jew or Greek, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, if it was possible for God to be foolish, and the weakness of God, if it were possible for him to be weak, is stronger than men. Paul applies three descriptive phrases to that second group we've been talking about, those who are being saved. And I want you to see the relationship between them. There in verse 18 is the one we've already named, those who are being saved. In verse 21, it's those who believe. And in verse 24, it's those who are called, those who are being saved, those who believe, those who are called. And let's begin with that third one, those who are called and work backwards. Understand, first of all, that God is the one who calls. God's the one that does the calling. Jesus once said to his disciples, you you didn't seek me, but I sought you. Old Testament says no one seeks God. God seeks us. Earlier in this chapter, Paul wrote to the Christ followers in Corinth, God is faithful by whom you were called. You were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul wrote to the Christ followers in the city of Thessalonica. He called you through our gospel. He called you through our gospel. This morning you have already heard the word of the cross that Christ died for our sins, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day as the scriptures promised he would be and that his resurrection was a matter of eyewitness historical fact. That gospel message is the delivery system for the call of God. God may be calling you today to put your faith in him, to put your faith in Christ. And in a moment, I'm going to invite you to respond and and do that very thing. And whoever chooses to do so may come. Some of you may today for the very first time be hearing the call of God to, to you personally to put your faith in him. There is no other Savior. Others of you have been hearing that call, but you've not yet responded. Today can be the day that you personally finally respond. And when you do, you will be included among those who believe and those who are saved. Paul taught this in Romans 8.30 where he wrote, And those whom he called, he also justified. Well, that's a great big theological word. What? What does it mean to be justified? Well, it means, first of all, that your sins are forgiven once you put your faith in Jesus Christ and you look to him for for the forgiveness of your sin, the payment of your sin debt before God. 
But it means a lot more than that. It means that God, the righteous judge, declares once and for all that you are right with him because you have put your faith in his son. When I'm justified, someone said it's just as if I'd never sinned. The Bible says in Romans 5.1, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. How is that possible? It seems ludicrous, doesn't it? It seems scandalous that, that those who have been blatant sinners could get off that easy. The answer is that the call of God creates what it commands. When God calls you, it's not because you earned it. It's not because you're that great person that you think you are when you look in the mirror in the morning. When God calls you, it's by his grace. And the call of God creates what it commands, and what it commands is faith so that all the called are justified because all the called believe. And all who believe in Jesus Christ are being saved. Romans 4.17 says he gives life to the dead and calls into existence things that do not exist. Earlier we sang a song that included the words, you called my name and I ran out of that grave. Each of us apart from Christ, the Bible says, is spiritually dead. And in that condition, Christ means little or nothing to us. But then through no merit of our own, God calls our name and we are spiritually raised from the dead. Sprouts of spiritual life break through the ground and for the first time we experience true faith and love and joy and freedom in relationship with God. So let me ask you this morning, what better occasion could there be for you to respond to God's call, if he's calling you this morning, to put your faith in Jesus Christ than Easter Resurrection Sunday? Are you willing to be a fool for Christ, to embrace this foolish message of a God who came to earth in human flesh and gave his life for the sins of all of us. I want to invite the band to come now as we sing a closing song. And I'm going to pray a prayer in just a moment and I'm going to ask you to bow your head now with me. And if God is calling your name and if it's your desire to respond to him today, to get right with him, sins forgiven, right relationship, peace with God, eternal life, then in a moment I'm going to ask you to simply slip up your hand where you are. So let's bow together in prayer. Father God, how amazing is it that you loved us even when we were still in rebellion against you, when we were still in our sin, when we were apathetic to you, when we were hostile towards you. That while we were still sinners, that you sent your son Christ to die for us. Because you love us,
because you long for us to be stored, restored to a relationship with you, to find the freedom for which we were created. Lord, thank you for the cross. Thank you, Jesus, that you chose willingly to lay down your life as the, as the atoning sacrifice for all of our sin. And that as we look to you and as we, in simple faith, not because we deserve it, not because we've done anything to merit it, but simply because, Lord, you love us and you call us to yourself. Lord, I pray today for each one here. I pray, Lord, that uh, you would grant them today that gift of faith that leads to life, that you would call their name. And if God's calling your name this morning, you might simply pray a prayer like this. Uh, God, I don't understand all of this, but I thank you that Christ died in my place. God, I ask that you would forgive my sins and that you would restore me to a relationship with yourself through faith in Christ. And thank you that as I do as I respond to your call that my sins are forgiven, that you adopt me as your child, that you give me a new name and a new hope and a new citizenship in heaven. If that's your prayer this morning, if you're hearing God calling you and you want to respond, would you just lift up your hand where you are? Just slip it up. Okay, thank you. Lord, on this Easter Sunday, as we remember your resurrection, we remember that you defeated sin in the grave. Lord, we, we thank you that our sins forgiven and then we know that death is not the final answer. And we celebrate. Thank you, Lord, for loving us. In Jesus' name, amen.